Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Are you tight with your possessions? You see a need, you're thinking, well, you can't afford that. You meet needs with your money. You meet needs with your possessions, and God will be generous to you. We don't do it for our sake, we do it for God's sake. And it's up to God how he wants to respond to it, but the goal for us is to love people with our stuff. consider yourself a generous person? When you see a need, are you immediately motivated to help in some way? Well, for most of us, generosity is likely an ideal, something we strive for but struggle with. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is warning us against materialism and reminding us that everything we have is a result of God's goodness to us. Our topic today is, well, you guessed it, generosity. Well, here's Pastor Mike with the message, it really is next to godliness. Moms and dads have been known to say that cleanliness is next to godliness. Whether it was invoked to try and get you to clean behind your ears in the bathtub or straighten up your bedroom, whatever the situation, those words, at least in my mind, seem to uh, evoke thoughts of future success in life being contingent on my clothes. If I was ever going to make it in life, if I ever had hopes of being gainfully employed, if I ever had any dreams of being pleasing to God, I just couldn't do it with dirt under my fingernails. That was the sense I had. You had to be clean because cleanliness was next to godliness. It was important. Well, although it may be effective motivation for children, at least some, to keep things clean or themselves clean. I just can't tell you that it's a biblical axiom. Not necessarily a biblical principle, you see, because some people, like John the Baptist, for instance, I'm sure never had a manicure, and I know he never had a clean shirt on when he preached, but Jesus pointed a finger at him and said, there's a godly guy. A lot of godly people in the Bible may not have been too up on cleanliness, at least as we define it in our culture. But whereas I can't say cleanliness is next to godliness, there are some things in the Bible I can say unequivocally are definitely part and parcel of a godly life. There are some things I can't tell you. I don't know what God thinks of deodorant, uh, although I hope he's in favor of it. I don't know. But I can tell you that he's in favor of being generous. I don't know what he thinks of all of our soaps and our shampoos, but I can tell you for sure he values a heart that is ready and willing to freely give. God wants people who are making a claim to godliness to be givers. Why? Because it's at the heart of who God is. It's reflected in the very first verse you ever learned. What was it? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gives because he loves. He cares, and so he's motivated to relinquish what he has and give to others for their benefit, for their good, and for their enjoyment. Now, there's not a person here who, if you want to be godly, think you could possibly succeed at being a godly person if part of your life is not clearly entrenched in the value of generosity. You can't be godly without being generous. You can't be a Christian who fancies himself to be mature in Christ if you are not known as being a giver. 
That is at the heart of what God is and what God does. He gives. He freely gives. He generously gives. Been with us through our series in 1 Samuel. We've watched David hit bottom. He hit bottom last week. God had tried to use kindness to get him out of his year and a half of hypocrisy and duplicity in his lying. God tried to use uh, all available means to show him that David needed to change his life. And finally, through a very severe spanking, having a group called the Amalekites come in and capture his wives and the children of his soldiers, he reached bottom. He fell to his knees, and as Josephus puts it, he turned his mind toward God, and he came to his senses. He repented of his sins. It's written between the lines in the passage. But we see clearly that now he finds strength with God, in God. He seeks the favor of God, and he inquires of God as to what to do. It's the first time we've seen him do that for chapters. And David, now with a renewed sense of clarity in his spiritual life, with a renewed passion for God, with a renewed sensitivity to God's Spirit, we watch the rest of chapter 30 in 1 Samuel unfold with a series of generous provisions on David's part to others. And I want you to turn there and look at it. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. We studied the first eight verses. Let me unfold and unpack the rest of this passage for you which shows David on a path that's filled with generous gifts, generous acts, and sharing that you don't see David involved in in chapters previous, and you won't find resident in the life of your average non-Christian. You see it only demonstrated the way it's demonstrated here in the hearts of those who purpose to be Christ-like, who make it their aim to be generous people. Context, of course, is they've returned to their hometown in Ziklag after getting off the hook and not fighting the Israelites, if you remember that. They were sent home by God's gracious provision, come back to God's severe spanking, finding that their relatives, their families are all taken hostage, and the 600 men march into Ziklag, completely broken, repent, at least their leader does. And God now, with a renewed direction in David's life, says, I'll help you get your families back. I will help you go and find the raiding party, and you'll succeed. So off they go. Verse number 9, look at it with me. David and 600 men with him came to the Bezor Ravine, and some stayed behind. Why? Because 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the ravine. The Bezor Ravine is the deepest and widest dry riverbed in southern Judea. It's about 16 miles south of Ziklag, where David was staying in Philistia. The Bezor Ravine was the turning point for a third of David's army. They were too exhausted to proceed because they had, if you'll remember, cried the whole night before until they were too exhausted to cry anymore. And three days before that, they had marched 55 miles from Aphek, the city where they were ready to attack the, the Israelites, all the way back to Ziklag. They had been traveling. They were tired. They were worn out. They were emotionally spent. They were depressed. They were bummed out. And now David, by the direction of God, was leading them 16 miles away, and now it was time to cross this ravine, and some of the guys said, we just can't do it. And so they bailed out. They said, we'll stay here. You guys keep going. And so they do. With 400 men, it says, David continues the pursuit in verse number 10. Verse 11 says that as they're going along with these 400 men, going, I'm not sure if they knew where they were going. They were just trying to pursue these people without any real clues to this point. But God had said, I'll give you success. And either by the guidance of God or just the logic of where these raiding desert nomads might have been, they started south 
And after they cross the ravine, they find an Egyptian in a field. The text tells us later that he was near death. He was barely conscious. He was famished and exhausted. But when they came across this Egyptian in the field, they brought him to David. And you might think, if you know anything about biblical history, that if a Jew finds an Egyptian, he'd be a perfect target for torture or, or murder because the Jews and the Egyptians in the Old Testament didn't get along very well. You saw the movie, right? I mean, the Egyptians and the Israelites were at odds with one another. Yul Brenner didn't like Charlton Heston. They were at odds with one another. I'm just making sure you're with me here. If the Israelites found an Egyptian, the thing that I would think would happen in the Old Testament was they'd leave him there to die. Why should they mess with him? Now, if you've read the rest of the story, it's no fair because you know he's going to be instrumental in David finding the Amalekites and getting his family back. But if you read this and you don't know where this is going, you're thinking David and his men find an Egyptian by the side of the road. Big deal. Let him die. We're busy here. We're trying to get to find these people that have taken our families. But instead of them bringing this Egyptian to David and David saying, fine, off with his head, kill him, look what David does, middle of verse 11. An incredibly generous thing. What does he do? He gives him water to drink and food to eat. Why did the Holy Spirit inscribe this here for us? Look at it. It says, he gave him a part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. It doesn't even make literary sense because I'm in the midst of this drama that's unfolding in this plot and now it has come to this tension. Will David get his family back and he's got to go find this raiding party and now all of a sudden we're explaining the, the menu. We're explaining what he fed this Egyptian. What's that all about? Well, perhaps if you've been to Israel, you might know that if you read this, a cake of, of pressed figs and, and three cakes of raisins, that's a pretty good meal for over there. <laughs> um, I guess it only makes sense if you've traveled there, but you know, this is good rations. This is not the prisoner rations. This is not just giving him some old, you know, piece of bread and some water. Giving him these things, and the narrator is careful to describe what it is for us, shows us that David wasn't just sparing the life of a guy he felt sorry for. He was being very generous by giving him things that might have been in the backpack of the baggage carrier who traveled with the head of the band of 600. He was getting David's food, good food, pressed figs and cakes of raisins. That's, that's not just your bread and water. What's it telling us? It's telling us that David crossed a line in being kind to a guy that every cultural and ethnic rule should have been do away with him, let him die, kill him. And David does something extraordinarily gracious and extraordinarily generous. So far generous was it and so generous was it that the narrator tells us exactly what he gave him. David was generous, trying to be a godly man even when it wasn't convenient. He did it when it wasn't Something he felt, some green fuzzy in his stomach and said, oh, this is such a wonderful man. Let's give him some. He had none of that. He just did it. Why do you think he did it? He did it because it was right. He did it because God told him to do it. Did some voice speak to him? No, the Torah spoke to him. The law said, even before the book of Exodus was over, you've left Exodus, and then God started giving rules. As early as chapter 22 in Exodus, it starts saying, if you come across an alien or a stranger or some foreigner in your land, don't treat him harshly. Don't oppress him. Be kind to him. Meet his needs, because that's the way God is. And as a matter of fact, by the time the Pentateuch is finished, the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses had given instructions to the people of God specifically about the Egyptians. Let me read you one of the passages. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7 says, Do not abhor the Egyptian. Don't abhor the Egyptian. Don't be mean to him. Don't be cruel to him. Don't oppress him. Don't harass him because you lived as an alien in his country. 
God is specifically saying, even if you don't feel it, and even if it's not convenient, and even if you don't feel a green fuzzy or some motivation to give, it is good for godly people to give. Hold loosely to your stuff, and if there's a need, give it away. If someone needs something you have, even if you don't feel compelled to, do it for what sake? For the sake of God. If you're taking notes this morning, you got your worksheet out, number one on your outline, it'd be good for you to get down. You and I, if nothing else compels us to be generous, number one, be generous for God's sake. Do it for God's sake. Do it just because God said it's the right thing to do. The rabbis in the third century BC wrote these words to the Jewish community. It said, help the one in need for the commandment's sake. And in their need, don't send him away empty-handed. Lose your silver for the sake of your brother or your friend. Don't let it rust under a stone and be lost. Lay up treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. Store up almsgivings in your treasury, and it will rescue you from every disaster. Better than a large shield and a sturdy spear, it will fight for you against your enemies. Well, here's the rabbi saying what David lived out, what the law of Moses had proclaimed to the people of Israel, if there's a need, you meet it. You are to be generous people. And you know what? The tacked on promise of the rabbis and of the Pentateuch was, if you do it, God will be good to you. As a matter of fact, the text reads this way in Proverbs 27. It says, when you give to the one in need, you lend to the Lord. Think about that for a second. If I let go of my precious stuff to meet the need in someone else's life, it's as though I'm lending money to God. Do you think God pays back loans? Yeah. Do you think his interest rate's pretty good? It's better than your CD in the bank. I can guarantee you that. He gives back. Now, if you flipped on your channel 40 this afternoon, you watch TV, you're going to see this principle completely maligned, adulterated, twisted, and it's going to be taught in all the wrong ways. Notice the carefully worded statement I just gave you, that we are to give and be generous for God's sake. You'll turn on the TV and they'll use this principle. Don't let them steal the principle from us because they can twist it, but they can't destroy it. They will tell you to give so you'll get. Now, if you give to get, whose sake are you giving for? You say you're giving for your sake. It is careful that we note that if we're going to be godly people, we give to meet needs, and we give to minister to people, and we give to be generous for God's sake, ultimately. And if you give for God's sake, you get God's attention. You give because you think God's some big candy machine or some slot machine. God's not interested in playing that game with you. Guys will get rich off of it on TV, but it ain't God's word. The Bible calls us to be generous for God's sake. We do it not so we can get. We do it because we're meeting needs and obedience to the scripture. So we let go of our precious stuff. And God responds, you bet he does. Look at the rest of this passage. He ate the cake, verse uh, 12. He was revived. He hadn't eaten for three days and three nights. And David said, hey, Egyptian, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? Now, what I'm supposing in this passage is that David doesn't know what he's just done. He doesn't know who this guy is. He's an Egyptian. He knows that much. He knows he's crossing the boundaries of his comfort zone to be generous. But he didn't know anything besides that. So tell me, uh, revived uh, dead guy by the side of the road, you know, uh, what's your story? Right? And the guy says, well, I, I'm, I'm, verse 13, I'm, a, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. Oh, those terrible Amalekites. He doesn't know the Amalekites were the ones that raided Ziklag, right? He didn't know that yet. Yeah, my master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. 
We raided the Negev of the Carathites. Oh, yeah, those old Carathites. And the territories belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. Well, that's not good. Those are, you know, brothers. I can see David not too happy with that. But, you know, kind of, oh, oh really? Okay, well, tell me more about your story. And then he says this, and we burned Ziklag. Boing, right? You burned Ziklag? I mean, you can see him standing up. What are you talking about? We're looking for the people that have burned Ziklag. And he's, he's just hit a gold mine now. I don't think he knew that. He wasn't trying to get some information out of this Egyptian guy. He just helped the guy. He was just being generous, I think, for God's sake. And all of a sudden, he hits the jackpot. And he finds out from this guy where they're at. He says in verse 15, can you lead me down to the raiding party? And he said, well, I can, but swear to me before God that you won't kill me or hand me over to my master, and then I'll take you down to them. And he led David down. Apparently, David agreed to that. And there they were, scattered all over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from the Philistines and from Judah. Now think about this. They thought all the Philistine uh, fighting men were up in Aphek or somewhere near northern Philistia fighting the Israelites. They had no idea 55 miles downstream here that David was going to get kicked out of the army and sent back and find his town raided, which they probably just raided a day or two ago. So they're having a party thinking, well, we made off with all these people. We got now all these future potential slaves. We're in good shape here. Let's have a party. And they're all blitzed. They're all half drunk. They're laying around thinking, no way in the world some angry dads and some angry husbands are going to march over the, the horizon and kill them. So they're totally unprepared. David's only got 400 guys left. He marches over the horizon and the hill, and it says in verse 17, David fought them. You can imagine the, the fury of, of these, is these Israelites. By the way, it was a capital offense in Israel to kidnap. And they had kidnapped all of their children and all of their wives. And the text says, so David fought them from dusk until evening the next day. And none of them got away. Well, except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. Now, why would that note be in the text? Maybe because this was such a huge victory. If 400 men squeaked out through the door and left, remember the people attacking them are only 400. This was a huge victory that God supplied for David and his people. And what's the text say in verse 11 or verse 18? David then recovers everything. He recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought back everything. And is that all? No. Verse 20, he took all the flocks and the herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, wow, this is David's plunder. Look at all this stuff we've got. Now look at how God responded. To what investment? Look at it again. Verse 12. Part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. And for a part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins, what happens? All of a sudden, God provides for David the information he needed, uh, a, a guide to take them to the front door of the Malachite camp, and he ends up with all of his family back, all the soldiers' wives and their children back, and he's marching with all this good stuff that was there, all the plunder that they had amassed, the Amalekites, now David had as his plunder. You think God pays back? You bet he does. Are you tight with your possessions? You see a need, you're thinking, well, you can't afford that. You meet needs with your money. You meet needs with your possessions, and God will be generous to you. We don't do it for our sake. We do it for God's sake, and it's up to God how he wants to respond to it, but the goal for us is to love people with our stuff. And the Bible puts that as the priority number one for people making a claim to godliness because God so loved the world he gave and he expects us to give, to give of our time, of our money, of our resources, of our possessions, of ourselves. 
And so we need to give and we need to be generous for God's sake. Look at all that God did for David. Wow, big deal. Sure it was. Okay, let's take all the stuff, go back. They're marching, all this stuff. Look at the next verse. They come back to this ravine, the Bezor Ravine. And David came to the 200 men that had been too exhausted to follow him. And you can imagine the reception and just how happy these men were. Here these men were depressed and exhausted and out of strength. And there they were hanging out. All of a sudden they see this dust cloud come up and they hear, you know, uh, sheep bleeding and camels doing whatever noises the camels make. And here they come and they start seeing their children. And they start seeing their wives and their friends and their grandmas. And here they are. And I can just picture some of the soldiers down on one knee hugging and tears coming down their cheek. Their children are back. And it's just a huge, huge, huge victory. 200 men, too exhausted across the ravine. 400 men already had their family. They're coming back. Happy day. It was a happy day. Everyone was greeted. And everyone was having a great time until verse 22. But the evil men... And the troublemakers among David's followers said, since these 200 wimpy guys didn't go out with us, and they didn't work with us, and they didn't cross the ravine with us, and they didn't have the stamina and the strength that we had, we're not going to share any of the plunder that we recovered. They can't have any of the stuff. Yeah, each man can take his wife and his kids and get out of here and go home, and all the wimpy people can split, but they're not getting any of the stuff that we got. I mean, you can see that, right? The, the American way. We earned it, man. That's our stuff. You sat around. All you did was stay with the baggage. You can just have your kids. We worked hard. We get overtime pay. Leave. Don't take any stuff. We get all this stuff. And David says, verse 23, uh, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. David replies, no, my brothers, you must not do that. Here's the theological perspective of David. Look at it. With what, underscore, the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Now look again up at verse 20. The people were saying, and everybody recognized, David and his men had earned this. This was David's plunder. And David all of a sudden has a completely different perspective on it and says, this isn't David's stuff. David didn't earn it. God earned it. He had a different perspective. He saw his stuff as God's stuff. We're learning to have a different perspective on our stuff today from Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point in a series titled Generosity. You can download the study notes and listen to the full-length message on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. Look for the sermon called, It Really Is Next to Godliness. Well, whether you're a regular listener or today's your first time joining us, I'm sure you've noticed that Pastor Mike is a straight shooter. He says it like it is, right from Scripture. Because as nice as it is to hear topical, feel-good messages, they won't equip you to deal with the nitty-gritty stuff of life. Having a strong grip on the gospel message is the only way we can take a David approach to life, even when it seems like everyone else is saying otherwise. This is why we're wholly committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word. Now, if you've been strengthened through this program, will you partner with us today so we can continue reaching folks with these daily Bible teaching messages? Donate online at focalpointradio.org or call us at 888-320-5885. And when you give a gift of any amount today, we'll send you a copy of Nate Pickowitz's book called How to Eat Your Bible is our way of saying thank you. 
If you find you aren't getting a lot out of your personal Bible study time, or you just aren't in the habit of reading God's Word much these days, then this book will be a great encouragement for you. And that's exactly why Pastor Mike and the Focal Point team have selected this practical and unique book as this month's resource. Go online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Be sure to come back tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. We're inviting you to join us as we sit down with Pastor Mike in the studio to answer the question, does prayer change God's mind? Hear the helpful discussion when you join us Friday for Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.